0: In many ways, our faith is like a war. We are on a battlefield, and it's not against flesh and blood, but really against the unholy trinity of the world, the devil, and our own wicked hearts. Now, the outcome of this battle is certain, and victory is assured. The first step of any war, though, is choosing sides. We can't be like Switzerland. We have to choose a side and then fighting to the end. And church membership is a key help in this reality. After today's sermon, we have will have two more in this series on membership matters. And my hope is that as we have worked through the biblical data, that you would see the value of church membership. That I have not argued And gone from text to text to show you where membership is in the Bible, but that I have shown you the value of it and why we do it. And that it is in the Bible and the data is clear. And we know that the Bible is not silent on the reasons for membership. Our hope here at Sierra Vista Baptist Church is that you would want to become a member of our church family to grow spiritually as we feed on the Word of God and share it with one another and our community. That we would sing together, like William does, in Christ alone. And we would sing it with gusto. Not not maybe with the most eloquent of words or the most beautiful of voices, but that we would belt it out with truth. That we would be like David, dancing in the streets, and if things get a little crazy, they, they get a little crazy. And we would celebrate and worship our God. That you would hunger and thirst for righteousness, as Psalm 63 so clearly points to the the value of thirsting for Jesus Christ. I really want you to thirst for the Lord. Our passage today is Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, and you guys know that typically I go through a book of the Bible, and we have one coming up But I think it's really important to take a break from our expositional series of books and talk about this topic of membership. And we've talked about it, uh, and we're going to continue to talk about it. And today, we're going to see how much we need to gather. I like a a friend of mine, when the COVID stuff was going on, he said, Church, some assembly required. We have to assemble, we have to gather. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So our passage is Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll be in 19 through 25, and this passage is more than just gathering as a church. It's about much more than just gathering as a church, but it's not less than that. It's about how Jesus, our high priest, has designated a means for the preservation of his people, his church. Have you ever wondered, why do I come to church? Why do I wake up? wrangle my children who are going to misbehave and bring them to church why do i do this is this some form of torture why do i gather well i hope that you have seen the answer to this over the last few weeks but this passage will provide additional encouragement and a warning so let's go ahead and read it hebrews chapter 10 starting in verse 25 therefore brothers and sisters Since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. Heavenly Father, as your word highlights for us, that we have a high priest. A great high priest that we can approach you with boldness. Father, what a magnificent, high understanding of our ability to come to you. That through Jesus Christ we can come to God. We don't need intermediates, we don't need mediators, we don't need a priest, we don't need a clerk, we don't need a um, a pastor but that we can approach you and come to your presence, all because of Jesus Christ, the only mediator we need. And he has purchased that with his blood and his flesh. God, we approach your word today uh, with humility. We know that truth is received or revealed, not just reasoned through. And so, Father, we pray that you would speak to us today. Help us be like Moses, where we ask, show us your glory, Lord. And that you would come and show us your glory here today. that we would be awed in your presence. That our hearts would beat a little faster. That our voices would be a little bit more encouraged as we talk about the things of Jesus Christ. That we would sing in Christ alone with more fervor and more volume than ever before. Because of gathering together. Because of the love that you have shown to us. Father, help us. To encourage each other all the more as we see the day approaching in jesus name we pray amen so full disclosure hebrews is one of my favorite books in the bible and so if it takes me a significantly longer amount of time i want to apologize in advance to all of you to your lunch and to the children because i really love this passage and not only this passage, but all of Hebrews, I had to study it in my undergraduate, and I just fell in love. They made us read it, um, I think it was like 30, 40 times, out loud, and we studied it, and we studied it, and we just sucked it dry. John Owen wrote a commentary series on this, seven volumes, more than 5,000 words, or 5,000 pages I'm sorry, more than 5,000 pages on the book of Hebrews. That's how important this book is how wonderful it is. And what's weird about it is we do not know the author of Hebrews. He doesn't say. In most most letters, they announce, right, this is Paul writing to you, this is James, the half brother of Jesus, all that stuff. But not this. This one, we don't know the author. We know that people have guessed that maybe it's Luke, maybe it's Paul, and so on. But what we do know is that this book is kind of like a sermon. This letter is more like a sermon. It has a, uh, a, a feel to it that is sermonic because he explains the Old Testament, and then he gives some illustration, and then he applies it just like most pastors do in their sermon process. And so you'll see that we have just finished an explanation point. So the area where we are, he has just taken an Old Testament text, explained it for everybody, Now he's summing it up in our passage, and then he's going on to the application or exhortation. He's telling us what to do about the information he gave us. So that's what chapter 10 and the ending is. It's the ending of an explanation. Verses 19 through 21 are a summary of everything mentioned before. And so essentially, the author of Hebrew declares, because of what Jesus has done, we can approach God with, boldness. Let's go ahead and look at verse 19. Therefore. What do we do when we see a therefore in our passage? It points to something. Something came before. We like to ask the question, what is it therefore? Right? Therefore means something came before. And what I love about Scripture is it doesn't just say obey. Right? Because it does. It says, thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt do this. But it gives you a reason. Be holy as I am holy. There's a reason why it says it. So we don't just get, you need to gather together. It says, because of what Christ has done. So what did Christ do? Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness. Now this boldness, this word boldness, can mean authorization. I love, the, I love how it, it sounds, authorization. You have authorization. You have a permit to enter. You are able to to enter in to some place. And where can you enter? No less than the sanctuary. The holy is what it's called in the Greek. It just says the holy. And if you are a Jew, your mind goes to where? The temple. And this book of Hebrews is really an exposition of the Old Testament as it applies to the New Testament, to us as Christians. And as you read in here, he's pointing out all the blood offerings, all the sacrifices, and then you can enter into the Holy. In fact, today, even now that the temple has been destroyed, there is an area that was originally where the Holy of Holies stood. And we know that there was only one person who was allowed to enter at one time during the year, and that was the high priest who was chosen by lot, and then he had to go through this purification process, and then he was allowed to go in there and take care of... Few things, and then he had to leave. And if he wasn't pure, he would die. And so they would tie a rope around that guy's leg and drag him out, so his body wouldn't sink and and rot inside there because no one else could go in. And so this is a one time, once a year thing after a long process. And and uh, the author of Hebrews just goes out the gate and says, "We have boldness." And he says this other places as well. You have authorization to enter. Now, through the blood of Christ. And what does that mean that we are able to do? Well, it means that we are able to communicate. We can go and we can talk to God directly. In the text, it says you are able to approach because Jesus is our high priest. What I, what I like to say is that the work of Christ, Christ himself, allows us the audacity to enter into the holiest of holies. Remember when Isaiah got a, a glimpse of God? What did he do? Flat on his face. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. When the Israelites saw the thunder and the cloud around, around Mount Moriah, what did they do? They said, We don't want to do anyth- have anything to do with this God because he will kill us because of how holy and perfect he is. They're a sphere. In fact, Moses would talk to God come back down from the mountain and his face would be shining from the presence of the Lord and that scared them so not only were they scared of God they they were scared of his mediator Moses and so now this author says we can walk in to the holiest place we can go into God's presence we have the audacity to enter into the inner sanctum and be ushered into the presence of God when, uh, when I was growing up in Senegal, there was this this feast, I can't remember what it was called, but it was a- after the long month of Ramadan, where they were not eating during the day, no, no eating or drinking of water allowed during the day, they could only eat at night, and it was a month long, right, the Muslims would do this. But during that month, they would get goats and sheep, and they would have them all gathered up, because at the end, they would sacrifice them, and then they would eat them. So, all month long, what do you hear? Bah, bah. And the bleeding of goats and sheep. And it's kind of like just loud. Everywhere you go, that's all you hear. And then the day after that feast, what do you think you hear? Nothing. Silence. Perfect peace. All those goats were dead. But imagine the blood. Blood everywhere. The sacrificial system. Every day was a constant process. If you want to know or get a glimpse of this, go to Leviticus and just read through the requirements for atonement. I'm gonna be honest, I was brought to tears one time reading through Leviticus because I realized how human you know humanity cannot dwell in the presence of the Lord without Jesus Christ. And so this is a, a heavy reality for the Jews, the Hebrews that are reading this. And they recognize that over and over again this blood needs to be shed. And in fact, in verse 10 it says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It wasn't even a full-on sin removal because it kept having to happen over and over and over. And then it says, not only that, he has inaugurated, which is a fancy word, for us to a new and living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. There's a new covenant that has been inaugurated, who has been started. And not only has it been is substantially different than the old. This is not a continuation of the old covenant, as some people believe. This is a brand new covenant. And as you read through the book of Hebrews, you recognize this is a new covenant. This is new. Because it does one thing. It secures perfectly the forgiveness of sins. Perfectly. That doesn't mean that you go and you sin and then you have to go and sacrifice a goat and a a lamb or a perfect lamb or a perfect bull every single time you sin. I mean, think about it. Every child that you had, especially the firstborn, you would have to take a firstborn offering to the Lord to redeem your child back because the firstborn was of God. And so you would have this continual thing. The first animal that you get, you have to kill that animal because it's dedicated to the Lord. There's all of these laws And it's just a constant sacrifice of blood because humanity is so broken. And we can see that in our world today, can't we? We can see it. And we see how people have tried to approach God. Well, I'll just be content with myself. I'm going to celebrate myself. Whatever desires I have, I'm going to celebrate them as natural and good. And what do we see happen? We see debauchery. The animals pursue pleasure. Why do we think that we, human beings, should do what animals do? It says here that the living way is inaugurated, a new and living way. I think this is a very clear picture of the resurrection, is it not? The resurrection of Jesus Christ, because when you killed a lamb, it don't come back. Right When you slaughter something, it dies, and it stays dead. It doesn't revive. All the animals that they would kill over and over again weren't coming back. But then this sacrifice did. This Jesus Christ did. And so we don't follow a dead path, but a living path, a path of life, which means the sacrifice is alive, which means we can communicate with the sacrifice. This is, this is good news. If you wanted to sum up this portion, you could say that we have access and a mediator. So we have two things here. The reason we can have boldness is because we have access because of what Christ did, and we just did a little mini-sermon on the blood and the body. But not only that, he's alive, and we have a mediator who is standing there with God on the right hand of God, sitting in on the throne, interceding for us when we sin when we are not worthy because we aren't we have a mediator and that's what is called christ's priestly role there's a threefold office that jesus does Uh, i don't know if anyone's ever talked to you about this but there's three things that christ does he is a prophet he is a priest and he is a king This is what we talk about when we say he is fulfilling the role of priest. He is the sacrifice and the mediator. So the threefold office of what Christ does. And so this may help us when it comes to understanding what faith is. Many people have a skewed understanding of what it means to be a Christian, to be saved. In Scripture, it tells us that we need to receive Jesus. Now, when I have talked with some people, and I say, you need to receive Jesus. Some people will say, okay, I'll receive him. And then I wonder, do they know this Jesus? What do they know about Jesus? Did they hear Jesus meek and mild on the, on the radio once? Did they see a, a cute picture in a nursery somewhere? Who is this Jesus that they say they are receiving? Is it Jesus as prophet? Is it Jesus as priest? And is it Jesus as king? Because if it's not, they haven't fully received Jesus. That's just the reality. Now, I'm not saying that you have to have a full understanding of each and intricate part, and when you think of Jesus, you have to think of a little priest guy and a little king guy and a little prophet. But what I am saying is the priestly role that Christ does is integral to our salvation. Let's go ahead and read what John says. John 1, 12 says, But all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believed in his name. The idea of a priest means that you must abandon any idea of saving yourself by your own good works. Because that's what the role of the priest was, right? You would bring your offering, the priest would take that offering, and he would make the sacrifice. So let's say you sinned against your brother, there is a requirement to get redemption. There's a requirement to get forgiven, in a sense. And you would have to meet that requirement. So let's say you killed someone else's animal, you would have to then bring a a replacement animal to replace it with, and it would have to go through this process. It was a long, drawn-out law process, full of works. So if you accept or receive Christ as your priest, that means that you are abandoning any idea of saving yourself through your own good works. You rely on him to represent you before God, and you are relying on him to do whatever is necessary to make you right with God. You're putting your full trust in him. That's where we get this word trust. You're trusting Christ to do what he says he's going to do here, to give us boldness to enter the sanctuary. Guys, the implications of this would take you months to think through. In fact, I didn't even get to the bottom of all my thoughts about the implications of the fact that he is not only a mediator, but the sacrifice, not only the sacrifice, but the mediator. This is amazing. But fortunately, we have a little bit of an unpacking that happens in Hebrews for us. Because of this high priestly office of Christ, we can draw near, hold fast and consider one another in verse 21 It says, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. I'm not going to talk much about this curtain that is the flesh. But remember what Christ did when he died. He ripped that curtain that blocked the Holy of Holies from everywhere else from top to bottom. So just keep that in mind. We're not going to unpack it. Now we get into verse 22, 23, and 24 is what I like to call the salad passages. Because it talks about lettuce. Lettuce draw near. Let us hold and let us consider. Now you'll never forget it, right? So how do we draw near to God? It's a worship term, right? When we draw near, it means that we can come to God because of Christ. And of course, this is continuing the image of the temple worship. When when you come to God, when you draw near to God, what do you have to do as a Hebrew? Hebrew. Well, you have to make sure that your sacrifice has been accepted. It's been atoned. You've been atoned for. Then you have to wash. You've got to wash your hands. You've got to wash your body. There's like a baptism that goes through. And if you go to uh, Israel today, you will see before different entry areas that there's a deep kind of pool that you would have to wash yourself in order to enter because you can't enter God's presence dirty. So, because of Christ, we have never-ending access and a mediator before God. And we need to use it to draw near. Just a couple of verses before this, in verse 14, it says, For by one offering, He has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Do you hear that? Forever. He has perfected forever those that are sanctified, those that are made holy. He has perfected them forever. Those people who are Christians are perfected for sometimes, for part of the time, for half the time, for a few years? No, forever. So if you are a Christian, you are being sanctified. You are sanctified forever. And then we need to draw near. We use Christ, the mediator, to draw near. Have you ever wondered why we tack on at the end of our prayers, in Jesus' name we pray? You ever wondered that? This is it. We only have access to God because of Jesus Christ. So in Jesus' name is the cause for us to be able to approach God. Without Jesus, you do not have an approach. You are not able to come before the holy God. Which means that we can say we are to draw near to God boldly, confidently, thankfully, joyfully. This boldness says that we have to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. That's, this is the way that we draw near. It's, it's draw, we draw near with true heart, pure heart, a single-minded heart. When, when we talked about being a slave of Christ, what did we say? A slave of Christ is someone who is swallowed up in the will of another. That's what we are doing when we approach with a true heart. We have one purpose. We are not double-minded. We don't come to Jesus And then we don't say a prayer to Buddha, and we don't say a prayer to Muhammad, and we don't say a prayer to all these other saints. No, we come to Christ. Single, true heart. That's how we approach. We draw near through Jesus Christ with a true heart. That means we're not double-minded in our prayers. Uh, There's a lot of talk about the battlefield prayer, right? If God, if you save me from this ambush, or you save me from this deadly situation, I will serve you, or I will give a tenth of my my money to the church, or I'll do this, or I'll do that. Friends, that's just double-mindedness, because you truly are just trying to get out of something. You're not going to Christ and Christ alone for salvation because of His beauty, Him. And so it's done with full assurance of faith. Now remember, the assurance here is not faith in yourself, your ability, you're figuring it out yourself, but it's Christ. Assurance of faith. That means that we trust in who Jesus is. We can draw near to God because our hearts are sprinkled clean. We have been washed. Now some will say that this is baptism Uh, at the very end of 22. It says with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. This is not referring to baptism. This is going back to the temple process of washing before you do your sacrifices, etc. Because some will try to use this to say you get washed and that means you're clean. No, baptism is just a sign that you have been saved. It's not that you are saved through baptism, but it's it's an outward sign of an inward change. Right? It's a symbol of who we are. And what I love about baptism is it's also a mini-sermon. It's just like doing the Lord's Supper. When you get baptized, everyone gets to remember who they are in Christ. When you get baptized, you remember the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so baptism is a symbol of that change, but it's for the church, for the building up of the church as well. We draw near to God boldly because our hearts are sprinkled, play, are clean. And this, of course, is pushing, pointing back to the Old Testament washings. And those old washings, consequently, were pointing to this future reality that we that is accomplished in Christ. So, when we see this, we recognize in the Old Testament, a lot of the things that were required point to what Jesus Christ accomplished. So what's the point of all this? This is all good news, right? Draw near, that sounds wonderful, that sounds fun. I mean, I want to draw near to the Lord. I want to have what David had. I want to be thirsty for the living God. I want to hunger after Him. I want my eyes to be bright in joy of this, of this Jesus. It means we can have faith. This work of Christ gives us faith. Now remember, faith is knowing the facts about Jesus Christ. It means believing these facts. And it means trusting in Jesus Christ. Remember what we talked about, that you could know stuff about Jesus and not be saved? You could even believe that the stuff about Jesus is true and not be saved. But it's not until you are trusting in Jesus that you are saved. Knowing the truth that our sins are no longer a barrier to, to a perfect and holy God should cause you to draw near. It should make you hunger to be in the presence of the living God. Something that other people were not able to accomplish through Jesus Christ. The second thing that you must do is to hold fast to hope. Look at verse 23. It says, let us, here's our second salad. Let us draw or hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. It says here, the readers are to hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. This is the third time this letter mentions holding on. And this confession, that these believers have already acknowledged and accepted. They've already said that this is the truth. The truth. And part of the problem is, these Jews, these Hebrews, were coming to the Christian church, and they were... They were kind of liking what they were hearing about Jesus Christ, and then they would fall back into old Hebrew laws and customs. And what the writer here is saying is, let us hold on to what you already confessed. You confess that you believe in Jesus Christ. You confess that you trust Him. Well, hold on to that. Actually, have hope. So this hope means something particular. Christian hope has a threefold understanding I, I don't you know i like threes because it, it's like a trinity so a guy named jim orrick he helped helpfully outlined christian hope like this he said number one hope is as a christian is believing a promise that god made for the future you're believing a promise that god made for the future the second thing is you are happy about the promise and want god to fulfill it right like the coming of the lord we are happy that he is returning And we want him to fulfill it if I was not a believer. I didn't and I don't have Christian hope I would not want the Lord to return All right So we're happy about the promise and the third we cooperate with the means that God has ordained for the accomplishment of the promise the promise And many Jews of course have an end-time hope They want the coming Messiah They want the coming Messiah that returns as a conquering warrior and make makes everything right Now, the New Testament shows that this timeline involves an inauguration, that Jesus' death and resurrection began the great redemption, but its completion has not yet arrived. Think about D-Day. When D-Day happened, it was a significant win for the Allied forces, wasn't it? It was a massive loss, but we knew that once we took Normandy and we conquered that beach, the battle was over it was just a matter of fighting through and mopping up once we broke that stronghold from the Germans we were able then to go on to VE day victory over europe and that so that was inaugurated in the in D day but it wasn't completed until VE day which was several several years later so when you think about the coming the death and the resurrection of christ think about the modified timeline because for the jews they imagined jesus would return And it would be over. Israel would be on top. Everything else would be subjugated. And the battle was won. But what Jesus comes and says is, no, I've inaugurated this victory. The battle is won, but it won't be complete until the second coming, the second advent. So we are encouraged to hold on to this objective hope. It's not some kind of external wishy-washy hope, but there's a real hope. And it's based on the promises of God who is faithful. So we basically bank on God's good credits. You use his character and you rely on God's character. The reason we, we trust in the promises of God is because of God's character. Because God has shown himself to be faithful over and over and over again. And we rely on him. And the way that we do it is without wavering. Look at this. It says, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. The writer is not saying that you have sinful or sinless perfection, but he's saying that you persevere. You have endurance. It's a warning to hang on and don't be swayed. There are many scriptures that identify true faith as faith that endures to the end. Have you thought about this before? What does it mean to preserve to the end? So true faith is faith that endures to the end. Hebrews 3.14 says, For we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. If we hold firmly. Mark 13.13 says, You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. I know some people wonder if you can lose your salvation. Have you ever wondered that? Can I lose my salvation? I don't have time to fully go into the reasons why I think you cannot lose your salvation. I believe scripture is very clear that you cannot lose your salvation. But essentially, let me give you a quick snapshot of my logic on this. It comes down to when you are a true child of God, like it says here in verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified, you become a true child of God. No one can take you from His hand. If you've truly received Christ, He promises that nothing can separate you. Romans eight thirty-eight through 39 For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or look at John ten twenty seven through 30. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. Get the word eternal. That doesn't mean he gives them eternal life for a little bit of time because that wouldn't make any sense. He gives them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So if you are truly a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have truly been saved, you will endure to the end. But if you do not endure to the end, you aren't truly of us. And then he says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. So you can't even jump out of his hand, right? A lot of people say, well, he can't snatch them, but I can jump out. That's not what it's saying here. What gives people the impression that you can lose your salvation is a deficient idea of what constitutes salvation. So a person may say that they got saved by repeating some prayer. Some people may say they got saved by walking down an aisle or raising their hand at a VBS or going to um, a youth kit or a kid's camp and asking Jesus into your heart. And I challenge you, look for where that says that in the Bible, asking Jesus into your heart. Or they just say, just admit that you are a sinner and you will be saved. Now, these are helpful in leading someone to salvation But rarely are people told the truth. And the truth is that you have to repent. You have to have a true saving faith through repentance. That means that you are seeing the true sense of sin. You see the mercy of God offered in Christ. And then he or she is grieved over the sin. You are grieved over your own sin. You hate it and you turn from that sin and you turn to God with full intention of obeying him. That's That's the stickler, isn't it? Obedience to God. No one wants to make Jesus Lord of their life. They like the idea of free forgiveness of sins. They like the idea of um, what Christ has done, access to the Father. But they don't like this idea of obedience. And that's what true saving faith looks like. Repentance that leads to eternal life is a saving grace. So I think many people have a superficial understanding of saving faith, and then that leads to confusion. So because you said a prayer 50 years ago at one time, and then you never came to church again, or you said a prayer 50 years ago, and you never made any progress in holiness, you are not saved. Because, what does it say? Without holiness, no one can see God. I mean, it says it really clear here in chapter 12 of Hebrews, verse 14. It says, pursue peace with everyone and holiness Without it, no one will see the Lord. If you're not seeing the fruits of your salvation, are you really saved? That's the question. So when someone says, well, this person says they're a Christian, saying something doesn't make you something. I could say that I'm Michael Jordan and you guys would look at me and say, that's not true. Unfortunately, we live in a society where my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth and we can kind of just decide what we want to be and we just choose our genders and our everything else. And it's sad because that's not how reality works. So we have a superficial understanding. It's kind of like the parable of the seeds in Matthew 13, right? Some seeds sprout up and they look genuine for a while, but they do not endure to the end. Trials choke them out. The troubles of this world or they get distracted. First John 2.19, I think, says it as clear as you can get. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. Do you understand that? A saving faith, a true faith, is faith that endures to the end. So we have a responsibility to hold fast. Well, not only do we draw near, but we hold fast. So how do you, draw, uh, how do you hold fast? I guess that's the ultimate question. Right? How do we pursue holiness in this life? Well, first off, of course, is prayer. We go into the presence of the Lord and we ask him for help because we can't do it ourselves. We meditate on God's word. We read it. Not only do we have a reading plan or we go through the Bible at some kind of regular way, but we think about it. We spend time dwelling on it. We take a verse from our reading and we think about it or even maybe a couple words from our reading. I read a book the other day, and I don't care about anything else in that book. That one or two sentences was all that impacted me. And sometimes when we read the Bible, it's one or two verses that really stand out. If you need resources, I have a book or two that will walk you through ordinary means of grace. You don't need a Damascus Road experience. You don't need an angel of light to pop up and tell you what to do. All you need to do is pray Read God's word and spend time in it. Get to know this Jesus Christ. Get to know that prophet, priest, and king. If Jesus Christ is prophet, that means that his words are true. And that's what we are saying, that because Jesus believed the Bible, I believe the Bible. Because he believed everything in here was true, I believe everything in here true. And if it's true, then that means it's helpful for me to grow in holiness. We can be like David who meditates on the law day and night. We can be like David who delights in the Lord, who says, I hunger and thirst. Guys, if you're not thirsty for the Lord, there's something wrong in your spiritual life. Uh, there's a book by Donald Whitney that gives you spiritual diagnostic questions. And one of them that just like gut punched me is, am I daily hungry and thirsty for the Lord? I'm gonna be honest with you guys. There are some days I wake up and I'm a big old grump. And I don't wanna talk to anybody until after I've had coffee, I've had some breakfast, and maybe about three o'clock in the afternoon, I'm ready to go, right? Right? And am I thirsting after the Lord the minute I wake up, or am I grabbing Facebook? Am I grabbing Twitter? Am I grabbing my email? That's the question you need to ask yourself. If you have to, buy an analog phone, be a weirdo, get something else, get, get an a alarm clock that you wind up maybe even, set that sucker beside your bed, and have a Bible next to it, and spend five, ten minutes reading God's Word and praying. Very simple. But we know what we do. We grab our phone. We say, well, I have an app on my phone. I'll just grab my phone. I won't look at anything else. I'll look at my app. And guess what happens? Next thing you know, you're playing Candy Crush. Okay, so we use the spiritual disciplines. We draw near. We hold fast. And thirdly, we are to consider one another. This is the meat of what I wanted to talk about, and we're almost done. So it says, let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works. The word provoke here could be also translated as irritate. Let's irritate each other for good works, and we'll explain what that means. It's a strong word. It's actually the word that was used when Paul and, um, was, was mad about Mark. John Mark had, had left them before, and he didn't want to bring him on the missionary journey. so they a uh, 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 provoking a ride. this is the same word here. So how do we provoke each other? And this is and right about now, you may be wondering. What has any of this to do with church membership? I'm glad you asked. This point in particular points to our need to gather together. And in fact, we need to irritate each other. And it's a command and a warning. The first thing is we need to irritate each other or consider one another in order to provoke love and good works. Considering means you need to think about it. You got to dwell on it. When you wake up in the morning, you are thinking about how you can irritate someone. I mean, uh, provoke them encourage them how you can make them into what god has called them to be in fact when you scrub yourself with soap you are irritating your skin to get the germs off right when you the olden days we used to have a little i didn't used to have this but somebody did the bucket with a little thing and you like rub it your clothes on there right you had to you irritated your clothes there's even there even used to be on the washing machines like irritation right or something like that, irritation mode or something. You probably only had one one dial, so I get it. But there was a way that you had to irritate your clothes to get them clean. And the same thing with us as Christians. We have to think about each other, and it's not spontaneous. It's actually planned. So what does it look like? First, it's like thinking, man, you know, Betty was looking down this Sunday. How can I encourage her this week? You were at church, of course, and you see Betty, and she just looks... Down, man. I'm gonna I'm gonna reach out to her this week. I haven't talked to her in a few months. I'm gonna see what's going on. It's thinking ahead, planning. Or you see some new people walk in and they're looking confused. Maybe they need to go to the bathroom and this this building is like a maze. You want to show them where the bathroom is. You want to show them how they can get there. Make them feel welcome. Um, Or maybe the folks in the kids ministry are struggling. You can say, what do I do or say to encourage them in their hard work? I know my children. I know sometimes they can be a pill, and they are growing, and they are irritating, and that makes me a better Christian, but guess who gets to deal with them during the Sunday service? Other people. So how can I encourage that teacher? Man, you know what? Edward came home, and he said five Bible verses. I've never heard him do that. You know what? You're such a great teacher. I appreciate you spending time on Sunday, not listening to the sermon, going and working with the kids. You can encourage people. It means looking out for people who might be falling into sin and warning them away from it. That's going to be kind of uncomfortable, right? Maybe you notice an anger issue and you come alongside and help and be an accountability partner. Maybe you're an old dad who sees a young dad getting real snappy with their kid. And you know what? You're like, I dealt with that. I used to have an anger problem. Let me walk alongside this man and say, you know what? I want to be there for you. If you get angry, call me. We'll talk about it. You're looking intentionally for ways to irritate, I mean, to encourage one another. You're irritating each other into holiness. You get to know people, and that only happens when you meet regularly. And here's the thing if you are not committed, if you are not part of the family, and someone comes up to you and says, Hey, I noticed you're angry, and you're like, Really? You think I'm angry? What's your problem? And you're not a member of this church. That's what you're going to say. Well, I'm going to go to another church. These people are mean. They're always picking on me. But the reality is there's accountability when you commit to a local church. It means that when I'm getting snappy with my wife and someone notices it, they call me to account, even when I don't like it. I have a buddy. We used to play video games online together. And one time I said something kind of harsh to my wife. And he said, put that controller down right now and go talk to your wife. I was like, no, I'm playing a game right now. She can wait. He said, no. He's like, we're done. Go. And he forced me into that. Then another time, his son punched his other son, and he went on the son that got punched and got mad at that kid. And I said, bro, I said, I think you handled that kind of bad, right? Like the kid that punched probably needs to be the one in trouble, not the kid that got punched, right? And he was like, oh, you know what? You're right. I think I did. And we called each other into account because we were friends, and we were basically, in many ways, like family. So you have to be a member of a family. And here we got the warning. So the opposite of provoking or irritating to love is to neglect each other. It's easy to neglect each other. There are many reasons for the early church not to meet. In verse 25, it says, Not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. People were not coming together for church, for family worship, for any kind of gathering. They were neglecting it. And that's probably because there was persecution. There was discrimination. There was people that we don't like at that building, at that gathering. And today we have all sorts of excuses as well, don't we? Some are legitimate. Some are really legitimate. Some people cannot make it physically to church. And I get that. But this is not what we're talking about here. You're not missing all your limbs. You're not sick and bedridden. There are people who skip because, guess what? The soccer game's on. Or, you know, we're going to we're gonna do sports every Sunday. My kids will understand. Do you know why there's a pandemic of children who do not come to church? It's because their parents did not have a value in what church gathering looked like. They did not see, think that church was important. In fact, well, there's a Little League game. We're going to go to Little League. Oh, there's a, a, a track meet. We're going to go to track meet. We're just going to avoid the assembly altogether. And our kids are going to think that this is important. That's not how this works. You have to make it a priority. Um, in fact, a failure to meet is the road to apostasy. I'm going to tell you right now, the more people that I meet who are not members or active or, or even come to a local church, they are on the road to apostasy. I see it all the time. In fact, I see my barber once a month. And a lot of times that boy is on the road to apostasy because he has emotional experiences and spiritual experiences, and he hops from a church to this church, but he's not dedicated to any church. In fact, sometimes he forgets that I'm a pastor, and so he tells me about his love life. And as he's telling me about his love life, I say, you know, uh, I'm the pastor of this church. He's like, oh yeah, um, and he, like, his whole personality changes. And it's just funny to watch, so I love getting my haircut by him because we have some deep conversations about his apostasy. I'm a great person to get your haircut for, or give, you know, get haircuts. Um, but it's a path to rejecting the blood of Christ. It's turning against Christ, and it, it's what is being shown here. Because later on it says, "If we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and fury, and of a fire and a consuming of the adversaries." And then it continues on about the dangers of apostasy. So it's a grave warning by the writer. It signals a great danger, which the rest of these passages are talking about. It goes to the point to a habitually neglecting to gather with other believers is a sin. And then, of course, it continues to talk about earthly judgment and destruction. And so our job is to encourage each other all the more. And this is... anticipation of judgment day you can almost hear the urgency this is important we got to do it right away the day of the Lord in the Old Testament is a day that the Lord comes in judgment it's a day that Jesus returns when he delivers those who belong to him and judges those who oppose him we encourage each other because the current world won't last and we help each other stay true to Christ every person you run into is an eternal soul Every person who comes to our church is an eternal soul. Our job is to encourage them in the faith, to to lead them along that journey. The reason we have membership is to provide accountability and assist in fulfilling these responsibilities to draw near, to hold on, and to consider others. When you become a member, you are covenanting to help each other stay true to Christ. It prevents us from falling away. How easy is it to plan to do something than decide to sleep in? If you say, guess what, I'm going to meet you at the gym at 5 o'clock in the morning, you are 99 times more likely, I just made that up, to go there to, to meet with that person. But if you're like, I'm going to get up at 5 and work out, how often do you work out? I would say close to zero. right? But if you're going to meet someone, someone's going to be there. So when we gather together at the church, you're like, man, I know people are counting on me to worship. When William comes, I sing a little bit louder. Because I know he's worshiping, i got to be worshiping. And the same thing is we come to church to worship. I was going to save this for next week, but I want to share it today. Did you know that when you get married, you are not allowed to date other people? I've been working hard on this illustration. Did you know that? Like, can you imagine how hard that is? So you marry someone, and that means no more dates. No more dates. And if you do happen to go on these dates, what is going to happen? Well, first off, you got this person at home messaging you and calling you and saying, where are you? Why are you not home? So you have accountability with a spouse. Not only that, your kids would like to know what you're doing hanging out with the floozy downtown. I don't know if that's what it was, but they want to know what you're doing. And then you have accountability to your kids. And then what happens if somebody from the church walks by and sees you on this date with this person? Man, that's a lot of accountability that requires commitment. Marriage requires commitment. And you know what? We are a society that hates accountability and commitment. But I'm going to tell you, it is good, it is beautiful, and it is perfect and right to be accountable. It is wrong to pursue relationships outside your marriage because your marriage is wonderful, even if it's not very fun. Sometimes it is but the goal is accountability. You need accountability in your life I need someone to say you know what you made some vows You made some decision. I know I'm not wearing my wedding ring because my wife forgot to bring it to me because I forgot it at the house, but I didn't call her out like that, but Accountability is important. So when you become a member of a church, you are getting accountable to somebody else You are getting accountable to a body of believers So I think it's clear by now that meaningful membership matters. It's encouragement and protection. It helps believers persevere in the faith. One of the things a pastor told me that I've never forgotten, that my job is to preach the gospel because it's a means of preserving people in the faith. So the more I preach to you, the more likely you are to preserve in the faith. I don't know if that's true. You guys might be passing out by now because lunch is over. So we got to gather. And it's a symbol of the wedding supper of the Lamb. It means being active in the church. It means you learn to savor Jesus Christ more. And without a doubt, the beauty of this passage is that Christ is our mediator and he is the high priest who is interceding for us at the right hand of God. And that there's cleansing power in his mediation. I'm going to leave you with this poem. And before I say this poem, I want you to know that if you are already walking in a relationship with Jesus, I want you to think about what it means to gather as part of a church, what it means to draw near, to hold fast, and to consider others in the journey of faith that we are on. George Swinock is a a Puritan guy that I really like to read. And this is what he says, and I think this is going to close us out, guys. Woe to him that is alone. David was alone when Satan drew him to defile his neighbor's wife. While the sheep flock together, they are safe as being under the shepherd's eye. But if one struggle from the rest, it is quickly a prey to the ravenous wolf. It is no—it is no hard matter to rob that house that stands far from neighbors. The cruel pirate Satan watches for those vessels that sail without a convoy? Are you sailing without a convoy? That is the question I have for you. Let's close in prayer. Almighty God, your word is truth. What you have shown us in these passages is that it is important for us to gather in order to preserve or to persevere in faith. Lord, you are a great God and a great king above all gods. You are the only God, the one true God that we can worship and we can come before the living God. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, we thank you for the sacrifice, we thank you for his mediator, mediation um, of, for us. And he is at the right hand interceding for us when we are fools, when we are wrong, when we are wicked. So Lord, I pray that you encourage our faith that we would grow uh, in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and these people would be blessed in wisdom and knowledge of you that would grow into love, love for you and love for one another. And we say all these things and we ask all these things through the power of the Spirit, but in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen.